0: Welcome to the Mysteries Decoded podcast. I'm Darcy Staniforth, an American studies scholar and lecturer, but I also love to explore the paranormal. On this podcast, we explore the paranormal, but also the occult, the strange, and the unknown as we try and decode the mysteries around these topics. Today on the Mysteries Decoded podcast, we're decoding cursed objects with author and podcaster J.W. Oker and the occult collector Calvin von Crush. Both of these guests immerse themselves in the world of cursed objects and yet are left wanting and waiting for these curses to change their lives. Our first guest is J.W. Oker, who through his writings and podcast encourages folks to get out and find the odd things around us, some of them being within a tank or two of gas. J.W. and I talked about belief, what he thinks should be cursed, and some of the world's most cursed objects that exist in both the
1: physical and digital world. It is absolutely grisly. You know, part of the price of admission to your family vacation.
0: Today we have author J.W. Ocher, who is the author of such books as 12 Nights at Rotterhouse, Poland, Season with the Witch. But today we are talking about his book, Cursed Objects, Strange But True Stories of the World's Most Infamous Items. He is also the host of the podcast, Odd Things I've Seen. J.W., welcome to the Mysteries Decoded podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining me to talk today.
1: No, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. it. sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. I
0: think we're going to have a good time talking about curses and cursed objects. <laughs> so you go through all kinds of different cursed objects. Yes. Then you also talk about cursed or objects that aren't cursed that you <laughs> wish were cursed, which I just love that. Like, these should be cursed, but they're not cursed. <laughs> and in the epilogue, you wrote something that I really loved. Which is, you said, how in regards to Cursed Objects that you, quote, grew to appreciate how powerful they are as starting points for stories, end Mm quote. Can you talk about this realization that you had a little bit more?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, Cursed Objects, historically, for me, have been a blind spot, honestly. Um, I visited way more than I realized just over the course of visiting weird and macabre stuff. You happen to see a lot of Cursed Objects. But as a concept, I never thought too much about it until I started this project. And... What I realized was that odd things I've seen, that concept is very um, physical. Like if I if I can't go see it, it doesn't exist almost. If I can't have fit something into a camera frame, then it doesn't really exist. So sometimes I hear about stories and they're folklore or they're a ghost story or they're a true historical account of something and there's nothing to go see. It's just a story that kind of bounces off your ear. It's very ephemeral, right? It's from one teller's lips to a listener's ears and then it disappears. Or even if it's written about it's kind of just shut in a book, right? It's it's closed in the dark in a book in a library somewhere, and there's no no nothing to really hook onto. Right. But then, you know, if there is an object, if there is an object that you can tell that story around, I, I like the Hope diamond because I grew up in the DC area and that was one we went to, you know, regularly in the Smithsonian. It's a beautiful diamond, beautiful blue diamond. And it's by itself, if you just walked into a room with it, you think it's beautiful. But that thing has a million stories wrapped around it. It has the conventional history around it, you know, starting in the mines of India and ending up all the way through all the rich people and royalty and stuff to end up in the Smithsonian. There's all the paranormal stories around it, right? All the kind of curses and stuff. And a good example of that is one of the most famous owners of the Hope Diamond was Evelyn Walsh. She was a D.C. socialite. She, you know, ended badly. Her, in in a lot of ways, she, she had children die and suicides and mental hospitals. But the thing is, nobody would ever know her story if it weren't for this piece of rock. That sits in the in the Smithsonian. That piece of rock is something to wrap that story around. So it's not just empty folklore or a historical anecdote that nobody ever hears about. As long as the Hope Diamond is around, and since it's a diamond, it'll be around for a very long time, her story stays alive. Every single person's story stays alive. Now, granted, with cursed objects, every single story is a tragedy. That's the kind of stories right. you wrap around cursed objects. But still tragedies are the ones we want to remember anyway. They're memorials almost. So that's what I like. I like having a physical thing, even in my regular visits, you know, that, that's the beauty of a graveyard, right? So a headstone is a physical reminder of a person long gone. It's a mm-hmm. thing you can go see, you can touch, you can photograph. If it's, the, if it's the gravestone of a historical personage, you can get like a larger sense of history that like this person actually existed. And this physical thing is the, the testament to that. So having that physicalness to an object is it can be a hope diamond. It can be a chair. It can be a cursed doll. It just makes the story more real and more memorable. And I, that's very, very important for stories. You know, if you don't remember stories, they don't exist. So that's that's kind of the big service that cursed objects have for us that sometimes we don't—we uh, give them short shrift over.
0: No, and I, I think that's a really important aspect to look at, right? Because like you were saying, sometimes you, like, hear about something, but you can't track down anything else than, oh, I heard about this once. Versus mm-hmm. when you can go to an object and go, oh. Do you know all of the stories that are wrapped in this?
1: Yeah, I always I always say not to like belabor the, the hope diamond, but I always say it's the perfect cursed object, right? Because it's small enough to lose, to steal, right? It's gonna have an interesting history because of that. It's only gonna really be bandied about by the ultra-rich, right? So all the tragedy happens to very rich people, which makes it very much easier to stomach when tragedy happens to rich people. Absolutely. And of course it has a, you know, it has both a legitimate, not legitimate, but it has both an, an actual history you know, that crosses continents and centuries and stuff, but also has this uh, paranormal history. So it has like everything you want in a cursed object. And like you said, if a thief breaks into the Smithsonian, they're going to take that thing of beauty, whether they, whether they know about the curse or not. And then of course the curse gets gets, gets keeps going.
0: Yeah, they're going to leave behind the weird historical chair and then just be like, give me the diamond.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly.
0: But I think this ties in larger to the idea of cursed objects. You said, I wanted to believe, but belief is irrelevant. I loved the stories. Yes. So one, do you believe? And two, does it matter if you believe if the story is good enough?
1: See, that's that's the thing. So I always have to go through this phase of the interview with <laughs> on spooky podcasts and spooky um periodicals, where I have to admit I'm not a believer in the paranormal. Like not e- and keep in mind, I mean, and you know now that I grew up Christian. So I, once upon a time I was a believer in the paranormal, because that's what you are when you're uh, religious. Right. But I'm not these days. And for very mundane reasons, I mean, I have probably about two dozen reasons, but it all really boils down to I've never had an experience, right? So mm-hmm. I always tell people I am one one experience away from believing in the paranormal. But And I don't think that experience is going to happen, but I've been to all the places where it's supposed to happen. I've stayed overnight at the cemeteries and the abandoned prisons and the abandoned asylums. I've done all that stuff. And I just haven't had any experiences. But what I also tell people is I'm not in it for the experience, those experiences. I'm in it for these stories and to make history and life real, more real to me, you know, with the physical aspect of this. And if I, tomorrow I walked into a house and a ghost, a beheaded ghost just walked right past me, my life doesn't change. I I still am into ghost stories. I'm still into going to abandoned places. I'm still into learning about history. And I just happen to now believe it, it, but there's no actual change in my life. No practical change. I'm still doing the same exact things. I'm going to weird stuff. I'm in the macabre. So it's like you said, it's almost irrelevant, the belief. So when people do focus on that, they do really, really obsess over that. Do you believe almost because they want to put you in a category? They want to say, okay, you're here then. So everything you say is through this filter. But the truth of the matter is the reason why ghosts are so powerful, real or not, are because of the stories they represent. Like nobody wants a ghost with no story. Even if you believe in ghosts or not, you need that story and that story is what, where the value is. It always is where the value is.
0: Yeah. Nobody wants a boring ghost. Nobody <laughs> wants the ghost that's like, oh, that that's just Frank. Was he, he do? Is it, did he have a tragic end? No, he just hangs out. <laughs> right. He's the bored 7-Eleven ghost.
1: Yeah, yeah. You don't know want that guy. You, you, no ghost hunting show is ever going to film in that 7-Eleven. You need a story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I've got to say that one of my favorite stories from the book And I think it's just because of the fact that I love funerary art and sculpture within cemeteries is just such a beautiful thing to me because it's like people forget that when you go to cemeteries that there are incredibly stunning Mm -hmm. works of art Within cemeteries that are not just like, not just beautiful headstones, but like statuary and all of these kinds of of things. So I was just wondering, can you talk about the Black Aggie?
1: Oh, of the, course. My favorite subject.
0: The Black Aggie is such a beautiful haunting story and also just such a beautiful work of art.
1: Yeah, and I agree with you. And the thing, I always give like five reasons to visit graveyards, and that's one of them, work, works of art. And these works of art, you know. They're more contemplative than anything in any museum because they literally are sitting above dead people and they're open to the weather. So the world has changed these pieces of art beyond what the original sculptor did. It's aged them, it's darkened them, it's lightened them, it's striated them. And meanwhile, you know, the one inside the art museum you go see is pretty antiseptic. It's, you know, kept under glass, it's kept in cotton. It's like, it's very protected from the world, but funerary art is just out there. And I always, I always tell people, go, go, it's an outdoor art museum. Go, go see that stuff. So I'm right with you on that, right with you. But the Black Aggie, and I love this one because this is another DC story. It starts out with uh, John Adams. He's a uh, part of the prominent Adams clan of politicians. He's not the president. He's not the. He's, he's a different Adams, but he's very prominent, very political. And then his wife, Clover Adams, kills herself. She drinks uh, chemicals. She's a photographer back in the nineteenth century, and she drinks photography chemicals to kill herself. So he comes home, finds her, and then he um, he gets uh, Saint-Gaudens, the famous sculptor to sculpt him a funerary piece to put above his wife's grave and eventually his in the Rock Creek Cemetery in D.C. It's a gorgeous figure. It is a six-foot-tall, black, bronze-shrouded figure. Uh, You can only see its face, one of its hands, which is up against its cheek, and a foot. And it's gender-neutral. You can't really tell the gender just from looking at it. And it looks like people have called it the most amazing example of funerary art in the country. And it just looks contemplative. It just looks grief-stricken. And it's sitting in a graveyard, free to go see. You can also see a copy of it in the Smithsonian and a copy of it up here in New Hampshire because St. Gaudens had a um, studio up here that's now a National Park, and you can go see a copy up there. But anyway, one of the most famous statues. doesn't have a name. People call it grief, uh, but Adams didn't want it named. He didn't want to put any baggage on it through a name. But then <laughs> next, next door in Maryland, there's a general named Felix Agnes, and he liked that statue so much that he hired a sculptor to copy it. And this, so this was a copyright uh, infringement on this statue and this work of art. You can't just copy people's art and use it. Right. In, in the internet age, you do that a lot, I guess. But really, you're not supposed to do that. So we had it, had it done, and it was a big deal. And it looks exactly like the original. The stories were that if you sat on its lap, you would die. If you stared into its eyes when they glowed red at night, you would go blind. If you were pregnant and you walked across its shadow, you would uh, lose the pregnancy. And... Uh, also, it would draw draw all other ghosts in the cemetery to it. It was like a paranormal beacon. So it had all of these stories around it and all of this misfortune. And eventually, uh, at some point, somebody even tried to cut its arm off. Uh, it was, <laughs> some guy tried to cut its arm off, ended up attacking a different statue and was found the next morning in his car, just bleary and you know with a, with a hacksaw in his car. So all kinds of stuff has happened to the statue. Eventually, it was so troublesome for the, the Agnes family and for Druid Park Cemetery, that they donated it to the Smithsonian, actually. And the Smithsonian was like, ah, uh, thanks. And then they immediately put it in storage. They never displayed it. They stuck it, whatever, in a basement somewhere. And there are millions of basements and storage places they have. Meanwhile, you know, they have a copy of the original in its own hallway up in one of their museums. But the uh, the, the fake, the copy, which at this point is old enough to be a historic artifact, they stuck in the in the basement. <laughs> mm. And then my favorite part of the story is where it ended up. So at some point... Uh, one of the one of the civil offices, they had a, a courtyard outside of a court building that they needed to pretty up. So they planted trees and plants, and then they got their hands on this statue and they erected it in that place. And it's still there today. If you go to the um, the court building in Lafayette Square, it's right there in the courtyard, and it's literally a block away from the White House. You can step step like twenty feet away from the statue, and you're looking right at the White House. But it's also about two blocks away from Clover Adams' death site. The house she, she killed herself in uh, is now a hotel. It's named after the Adams. hey, It's called the Hey Adams Hotel. Now a hotel. Uh, the rumor is her ghost um, haunts the hotel, which again is only two blocks away from a copy of the statue that now sits above her grave that was made when she killed, because she killed herself. So this amazing, uh, this amazing story of art and spookiness and history and geography, which is what I love the most about it, is the geography of it. Uh, but the statue itself is magnificent. Even without a story, that statue is one of my favorite things on the planet.
0: Yeah, it it is a, a stunning piece of statuary art, of art in general, and I learned this a couple years ago through an art historian who I saw present at a conference, but she's like, do you know how many priceless works of art sit in cemeteries and mausoleums? And yes. oftentimes, families don't even like, aren't even aware of their value because they've like, oh, this was, you know, Aunt Irma's favorite painting, and here it is in the mausoleum. (laughs) So, in researching the book, and you went on some amazing adventures detailed in this book, what is the wildest or strangest experience you had researching cursed objects?
1: The strangest? Um, Honestly, it'd be buying a cursed object, So all the coolest cursed objects are usually in museums. There's some in private collections, but they're usually in museums. So the place you want to go if you want like a gritty, gritty, kind of scary cursed object experience is eBay. You go into eBay right now. I guarantee you, you'll find, and type in the word cursed objects (laughs) into the search field. You're going to find cursed dolls, cursed boxes, cursed artifacts, cursed artifacts from other cultures. You're going to find all kinds of stuff. And it's a skeezy experience because you know, you know, you know, you know that a lot of this stuff is fake. You know, a lot of people are trying to take advantage of other people. There, Some of these things go for, you know, three figures, sometimes in the thousands of dollars. But for me to be interested in the book, I need to be involved in it. <laughs> I, always, I always joke that the word I appears in my, my nonfiction more than any other word because <laughs> I want to get experience out of this book more than anything. Like having a book of, on my shelf that I did is like a cherry on the on the experience, but I want this book to be a year of my life that I enjoy. I make friends through it and I have adventures through it and all this other kinds of stuff. So I knew that if I was going to write a book about cursed objects and go visit some, I would need to also buy one. I'd have to have mm. one in my house. So I did that. I had very specific criteria. I, it was, you know, it couldn't be really expensive because I, again, I didn't want to support the snake oil parts <laughs> of, this, sure. of this commerce. It had to be something uh, aesthetically pleasing to me because it was going to sit in my office while I wrote about cursed objects. I had to like, like it. it, had to fit into my aesthetic. And then finally I found one. It was this little, I still have it actually it's right behind me as, as I talk. It's this little bronze dog, um, no markings on it. There's no like copyright. There's no, no, you know, trademark, nothing that would make it like <laughs> seem cheesier than it is. And the person I bought it from had this story about her father buying it in China and it bringing absolute troubles on their entire family, their entire lives, financial trouble, internal squabbling, death and sickness, it just hurt their life (laughs) and it hurt her life for so long and so much that she sold it on eBay to me for 11 bucks. So it's weird. So I bought it and then she sent me a follow-up email saying stuff like, I I hope you get what you asked for. I hope, you know, used it on an ex-husband or wife, all all these like things about this. And what I realized eventually, and it came in the mail in a box and the box was scribbled all over with more warnings and more warnings and what i realized was i wasn't buying a cursed object i was probably buying the experience of buying a cursed object because you know when you think of buying a cursed objects right we think of the beginning of gremlins it's it's always a tiny antique store probably in chinatown with piles and piles and piles of antiques dim candle lit and there's a proprietor who won't sell you anything <laughs> that's that's how we think of you, you buy a cursed object i want to buy this no i cannot sell you that but it's it's got a price tag on it i will not sell you that that's dangerous but It's in a shop, you know, that old thing. So uh, it was the experience and she gave me a really good experience. So then I did that. I took that cursed object and tried to do everything with it. I I took it to vacation. I put it on my desk because I wrote about cursed object victims. I took it to work. I tried everything to get some kind of story out of that, out of owning that cursed object. And I didn't get one. I got the story of buying it. That's in the book, but I did not get a story out of owning it. And Honestly, the year of writing that book was a really good one for me for lots of reasons. So I might have accidentally bought a good luck charm <laughs> instead of <laughs> instead of a cursed object, which is a hazard of the field, you know?
0: Right. One person's cursed object is another person's blessing. <laughs>
1: that's very, very possible. Yeah, And I think that's probably true um, in history, too. There's probably objects that one culture thought was evil and another culture thought was exactly what you wanted in your life. What the hell was that?
0: That can't be good. It can't be good. It can't be good. So now— Thinking about in the book, you have your section on why aren't these objects cursed? Yes. <laughs> so of those items, which one did you really just like, oh, come on, let me uncover a curse story about it. Like, which one did you so want to be cursed?
1: I think you can probably guess. It's got to be the severed head of the Dusseldorf vampire, right? This is the head of a serial killer who killed, prob- killed or maimed some 60-some people. They so took his head, they cut it open and they looked at his brain and expecting to find teeth or eyeballs or something in there or it being a different color, they found it to be a perfectly normal human brain. <laughs> his brain was all of our brains, you know, nothing wrong with the physical part of the brain. So, you know, then they had this head that got mummified and then got passed through to collectors, to collectors, to collectors. And then, <laughs> today he sits on a hook, on a rotating hook in Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in Wisconsin. And anybody can go see it. I took my family to see it. It's, you know, right next door to a fudge shop or a water slide park or something like that.
0: Well, and I also love the fact, like, you want it to be cursed because they've also hung it on a hook. It is the most, it looks <laughs> like they did with him what he did to somebody else. Yeah, like, they don't just not- have it on a stand. It's <laughs> rotating on a hook.
1: <laughs> it's not at all sanitized. You know, it's a lot of when body parts get put on display, they're often sanitized, right? They're bones. Bones are, can't be more sanitized than bones. Or if it's a holy relic, if it's a religious relic, they wrap it in wax or whatever they do to it. But this thing, you can see its nostril hair and you can see its eyelashes. You can see at what what point he stopped shaving that day. It is absolutely grisly. And again, you know, part of the price of admission to your family vacation.
0: So the Dusseldorf vampire, not cursed, should be, not cursed. But in the book, you talk about a chest of drawers, the thing no one would suspect, (laughs) that had this huge and very high kill rate. So can you talk a little bit more about that story?
1: Yeah, this is another weird story that I don't quite know what to do with. It had to go in the book because it was a weird story. So it's called The Conjured Chest. And the story is that anything you put in its drawers, if you put clothes in the drawers, whoever owns the clothes, they will die. Or they could get horrible misfortune, but I think it was 17 times out of 18, they died. And then one person got stabbed in the hand or something like that. So it has a pretty high kill rate. And it was, uh, the story is that it was made by an enslaved uh, at the behest of his master. And the story is that the plantation owner was so not happy with it, even though it's a gorgeous chest of drawers, you know, you can see it in Kentucky right now, didn't like it. So he killed the enslaved person and then the enslaved person's family and friends, they put a hex on that chest of drawers. So when that guy took it to his kid's room and put his kid's clothes in there, the kid died. And then, of course, again, you don't suspect the chest of drawers. You don't suspect like if, if your kid died, you don't think, oh man, I need to change out the bedroom furniture. You don't think that. So it ended up going to another person in their family's room. They died. It ended up going in the attic for a while and getting passed on to some newlyweds in the family to start their life. And they died and they died. And they- so it's all the way through, um, all the way through this generations of uh, this family, and the way we heard about this story is by a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. And she uh, wrote a bunch of essays about life in the South. And then after she died, her daughter collected a bunch of those essays into a few books. And one of those books won the Pulitzer. And she wrote about this story. She wrote about this Chester of drawers that killed generations of her family. And is in a book called Flap Doodle, Trust, and Obey. And just came out and said, this is what happened. And when she found out about the story, she found a way to unhex it. She had a friend of the family who knew about hexes. And she she explained the entire process. She had to pick magnolia leaves from a friend's tree and find uh, feathers from an owl. There's all this stuff she had to do and boil it and stare at the sun or something. There's a whole process for dehexifying this chest of drawers. And then when the donor got it, she kept it in her attic, wouldn't let anybody put, even though it was dehexed, she put, wouldn't let anybody put clothes in it. And then she eventually donated it. And she lived in Kentucky. She donated it to the Kentucky Historical Society. But the fact that you can go see it, And then read the book, it's all these weird parts of this curse story. It's not just, you know, an Englishman stole something from a pharaoh's tomb and took it home, and then him and his family died. It's way weirder than that, (laughs) and and it's pretty modern by comparison. So
0: a lot of the objects you talk about are older objects, right? But Mm -hmm. towards the end of the book, you finish with The Curse and the Machine, which I love that the title of that section. And you talk about some more modern wonders And three of the things that I really like that you highlighted were the cell phone number, the video game cabinet, and the chain emails. As more (laughs) modern, like, hey, these things have like death wrapped around them.
1: So a phone number, right? So a phone number, the first three people that own the Bulgarian telecom curse number all died, right? And it's just a phone number. It's not even really a digital object. It's a Concept. It's a string of numbers. These days it's more of a physical thing because it's our identifier. Like cell phones are how we identify ourselves. But in those earlier days of cell phones, it wasn't as much um a thing. It's just their numbers you typed into it. The right. berserk cabinet, right? That's that's lines of code that you know make a bunch of alien robots that you try to escape and beat levels. It's nothing but that. You know, it's a screen with colorful images on it, but really it's lines of code that some programmer did. Chain emails, right? Those are more lines of code. They're just lines of code, but in the end, the thing about the digital world is things are more pervasive, right? So I can't pass around the Hope Diamond and curse as many people as possible, right? But I can send a chain email to a hundred people with a click of a button. So in, <laughs> in that way, digital objects are really pernicious. But the way to beat cursed objects are really easy in the digital world, because if you remember cursed emails, we don't get them as much because our spam filters are way much more advanced. But back in the day, you'd get one, and it would say, "Hey." You've started reading this, so you can't stop. If you don't forward this to 50 people or 10 people, Bloody Mary will appear in your room tonight and eviscerate you. And here are examples of the times she did it before. And it'll name names. It'll name, it'll tell little stories. And even if you don't believe, all you have to do is hit the forward button and you're absolved of that curse. You know, so right. why, why not do that? Why not? Just in case. It, it takes such little effort. And of course, these days it's translated into cursed tweets and cursed Facebook posts and cursed Instagram images. And I'll say this, we had a cursed pop-up window, which I find super fascinating, right? We can't avoid pop-up windows. In a way, they're a curse already, right? All of our experiences are cluttered with them. Subscribe to this, buy this. Did you see that? It's all over our our online experience. It made the internet almost unpalatable. There's so many of them out there. But there's a story of the Red Room. and. The red room is if you're on the internet and it pops up and you don't even have to be doing anything to cause it. You don't have to be on the dark web or doing nefarious things online. It just pops up on you. It just chooses you at random. And it's a red pop-up and you'll see a string of names. And if you scroll all the way to the bottom of that name list, you'll find your own name. And that means within 24 hours, you will die and your room will be painted with your blood. That's the the red room. And there's no way to stop it. You can't turn off your computer. You can't shut down the window. You can't unplug it. I mean, you can, but it doesn't stop the curse. You're dead within 24 hours. And the reason I, I love that story, and there's, there's actually some animations online, some old flash animations of what of the Red Room. Ugh. The reason why I couldn't put it in the book, one of the criteria for the book is people, we had to have stories of people dying. So if mm-hmm. it was a cursed object with no deaths, it's not really a cursed object. But in this case, the only two deaths were very real, true crimes that happened in um, Japan of... Young girls, adolescents, killing other young girls. But a cursed pop-up is, to me, the it's almost like the Hope Diamond of physical cursed objects. It's like the perfect or digital cursed object.
0: Oh, yeah, because like you said, you can't stop it. You can't, like, when a pop-up happen, and, you know, we all have pop-up blockers now. Yes. Yeah. But at the same time, they still show up, and you're like, oh, <laughs> how did that get through? And so the idea <laughs> of, and I think about the early days of the web and pop-ups, like, that, that, hearing that story, I got a chill. I was like, oh yeah, that would totally freak me out. Yeah. And so finally, I want to ask about the fact that when you go to look up this book, Cursed Objects, Strange But True Stories of the World's Most Infamous Items, people are met with a warning that the book itself <laughs> is
1: cursed. Yeah, yeah, and it is, it is. We put a curse right in the front of the book. This was an idea that actually one of my friends gave to me while I was in the middle of writing it, they said, Hey, are you going to write about book curses? I'm like, well, not really because a book curse isn't a cursed object. It's a, it's a book curse. And then I was like, Oh, I can't remember if it was their idea or mine. I would love to take credit for it, but probably was theirs. I was like, what if we can curse this book? What if this, what if this book about cursed object is a cursed object in itself? And my first idea for that was somehow getting somebody with that kind of power to curse the press, but whatever the publisher actually physically made the books on, And obviously that didn't make sense. So then, you know, we dug deeper into this idea of book curses. And back in uh, medieval times or back pre-printing press times, when making a copy of the book was hard, it took years to make a copy of a book. And then at the end of that big effort, you only had two books. (laughs) You still didn't have a lot of books. So they're precious. They're very valuable. So they're trying to find ways to keep people to not steal it. So they would chain them to shelves. They would put locks on them. And then they would write curses in the front of them. And the curse would be, there's probably about a dozen examples readily at hand online that, you know, if you stole the book, bad things would happen to you. And they would go into grisly detail about what would happen to you. You know, ravens plucking out your eyes and getting your tongue ripped out and falling into scalding water and all these things that could happen to you if you stole this book, hoping it would scare off at least one person that might thieve. So we went and found one of those actual curses and made sure we put it right in the front of the book. So that means if you buy the book, you're fine. If you buy the book and gift it to somebody, you're fine. The second you steal it, (laughs) <laughs> whether it's the physical copy or the digital copy made out of the code, you're in for some bad stuff. I think you get hanged by a noose and ravens attack you. Something like that. <laughs> no, no, this is, not, this is real.
0: not real. So I wanted to ask you a couple questions that we gathered from the interwebs, a little from Twitter, a little from Facebook, because people are interested in things and they want to know. So Amy Thornton asks, what do you think exactly happens when a person or object is cursed? Do you think something, you know, you've mentioned you're not a believer, but she mm. wants to know, do you think it's actually spirits causing problems or is it them?
1: It, I don't think anything actually. So uh, one of the things I had to do for the book was I had to differentiate between a haunted object and a cursed object and a possessed object. Because there are three very different things. Like a haunted object can act like a cursed object and be a cursed object, but not always, right? So you can have a haunted object that never hurts anybody. It's just a spooky dress that figures appear around. So I had to actually differentiate between that. So to take that question literally, if it's an actual cursed object, not haunted, not possessed, I feel like nothing changes about the object. They don't hurt everybody that comes in contact with them. They're, they're not—it's almost like a virus, right? A virus can go around a town and not hit everybody. Everybody can be exposed to it, but not everybody will get sick. Cursed objects can be exposed to lots of people, but only certain people will get affected. So that tells me it has to be something internal to the person. That's what kind of changes, not the actual object itself. But some cursed object victims never even saw the cursed object. They were just—journalists, for for instance, they were just interested in it and wrote about it, got yanked into the curse. So not even knowing how the mechanism works, you know, it's got to be really intrinsic in the person. That's where the magic happens. (laughs) Can I use that phrase for this? (laughs)
0: And then the other question that we got from at Eerie Nature, what do you think about the rise of haunted and cursed objects for sale on places like eBay and on the internet?
1: If it's for sale, it's suspicious. If you have something you think is that is paranormally dangerous, you're either into that. So you're keeping it or you hate it and have to get rid of it or you're scared of it and you have to get rid of it fast. If you're selling it, that just means... uh, You're capitalizing. That means means there's a market for it, first off, which is also kind of weird. But, yeah, I feel like if there's a dollar amount attached to it, it can't be. Like, I don't know. You don't sell a cursed Object. You just don't. You just don't sell a cursed Object.
0: Well, and I think what you were saying earlier, talking about buying the Bulldog, right? You paid $11 plus shipping for (laughs) the story. Yes. You know, and we pay more than that to go to the movies.
1: Yeah. And for the memento. So now I have this thing sitting on my desk that always remembers. It's almost more of a memento of the book than the book itself for me. Like I, it just, it was my companion (laughs) during the adventure. So that's what I paid for. And again, yeah. Once you put money in general, in life, once money gets involved, everything is suspicious. (laughs) And it doesn't matter if it's paranormal or not, or just regular business or family. If money's involved, there's a different issue at hand. So I, I would say the same of Cursed Objects.
0: I love it. I absolutely love it. Well, J.W., it has been such a pleasure to talk to you and just have such an incredible conversation that went so many places, but especially about all of the cool things around curses and cursed objects. So thank you so much for coming on the Mysteries Decoded podcast today.
1: This was a blast. I really appreciate you inviting me. And then this was just worth it just to be on. It was a lot of fun.
0: Our other guest today is the occult collector, Calvin Von Crush. Calvin and I talked about how his obsession with collecting began, his vast collection of talking boards, and some of the incredible objects that live in his personal occult museum. Because how many Ouija boards are in your collection now?
2: I've got to have over 100 Ouija boards in my collection.
0: Today on the Mysteries Decoded podcast, we have Calvin Von Crush. He's a professional tattoo artist, one of the founding directors of the Talking Board Historical Society. And you can catch his show, The Occult Collector, on Amazon Prime. Welcome to the podcast, Calvin. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that we're doing this today. So, as we start talking about this massive collection of yours, a collection that is so large that it has caused you to build a museum in the basement of your house, how did you get started down this road? Have you always been a collector? Uh, did somebody give you something weird that started this collection? What what got you started on this path? I think collecting, uh,
2: at least at the level that I'm at, is. Sort of a form of mental illness. Uh, it's like an anxiety <laughs> disorder. You really have to have this thing inside of you that eats at you if you don't go after the next object. And I've always been like that ever since I was a little kid. My mom used to tell me a story about a babysitter who would bring over gravel from a, a driveway close to her house, and she would tell me they were moon rocks. And I would have buckets of driveway gravel just filled up in the backyard because I thought they were moon rocks. And I I wanted to collect them and hold on to them because I wanted to be an astronaut at the time. And then as I grew up, I wanted to be a paleontologist and I started collecting dinosaur figurines. And I didn't play with these toys like a normal kid. I would just set them up on the bookshelf like a little museum. So I've always had this collector bug inside of me and I've always had the passion for the paranormal it was only a matter of time before they kind of just like both flipped the switch at the same time and and they became one entity.
0: I totally understand that. I did that with toys and dolls as a kid as well, (laughs) like would set out elaborate scenes for hours and hours and then not play with them, just like taking the scene. So I totally understand that. So going from astronaut to paleontologist to awesome careers, But then what flipped that switch into the paranormal? What was that item?
2: Well, the paranormal has always been a big part of my life. I grew up hearing ghost stories from my family, and I was a devout Catholic. So I always believed in ghosts and demonic possession and the struggle of good versus evil. It was very real to me. And the first item that ever came across my path that would allow me to experience the paranormal was, of course, the Ouija board. And I got my first Ouija board, I believe I was nine years old, and I got it for Christmas.
0: Nice. So that's where your first talking board came to you, at nine years old. So at nine years old, what kind of experiences were you having with the Ouija board, or were you even having experiences? I've never
2: really had an experience with the Ouija board where it's moved for me and answered questions or produced any kind of ghoul or ghost or demon to terrify me.
0: That's That's fascinating. And so then has the drive to collect... Because how many Ouija boards are in your collection now?
2: I've got to have over 100 Ouija boards in my collection.
0: 100 Ouija boards in your collection. So has the drive, do you think, partly been because maybe the next one will unlock these mysteries for me?
2: Yeah, collecting has actually made me a skeptic and an atheist more so than a believer. Because... The more I'm surrounded by these objects, the more I see that there's got to be some psychological explanation for everybody saying that they're experiencing these things. Because I have not gotten lucky yet. And you figured with all the things that I have in my home, I would have the most haunted home in America. But I don't. I sleep like a baby.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about talking boards. Because in our culture, the Ouija board, I think, is one of the most accessible occult items for people, but I think it's also something that has some of the biggest stigma around it. Like, I know uh, a friend of mine who will not keep his Ouija board in the house. It stays in the trunk of his car, which I'm like, well, if you're nervous about it, why is it in the trunk of your car? Because then it doesn't affect your car, but you won't keep it in the house. And other folks that you can't mess with that, you can't play with that. And there's a lot of stigma around it, even though... The longer history of talking boards is not of this possession. It was this medium, the spiritualism tool. So I was wondering if you could talk, number one, a little bit about the history of such a prominent cursed object in our culture and just give the audience a little bit about that. So the Ouija board was
2: officially invented in 1892. The first ever patent submitted was by a gentleman named Elijah Bond. And I believe it was his sister-in-law, Helen Peters Noseworthy, is the woman responsible for naming the Ouija board. Well, the Ouija board uh, was said to have named itself during a seance. They asked what it wanted to be called, and it spelt out O-U-I-J-A, which was on a locket that Helen was wearing. And they asked her what it meant, and she replied that it meant good luck. So we have those two people that were behind it. And of course, uh, everybody knows the name William Fold. William Fold ended up buying all the shares from everybody else involved with it. And he became the owner of the Ouija board and took it to its height of popularity. Now, we have to talk about why the Ouija board has been popular for so long. And the main reason is because Ouija boards really do work. Now, I know that's weird coming from the skeptic who says the paranormal's not real, but Ouija boards work because of a psychological response called the ideomotor effect. It's your body staying in motion and creating a response when you're expecting one. So when Mm. people go into a session with a Ouija board expecting to talk to a ghost and have a good time, they're going to have a good time. But if they're expecting to be scared and talk to demons or have another experience like that, that's what's going to shape the occurrences. Ouija boards have been used by so many different types of people. There's been people who have used Ouija boards to allegedly talk to space aliens Some people use them for pet communication. There is really no right or wrong way to use a Ouija board. Every little subset group that uses them shapes them to their desires, and there's nothing wrong with that.
0: Right. And from my understanding, the Ouija board going from this tool of communication to the demonic item that it supposedly is really comes about as we see the popularity of The Exorcist, which in itself is claimed to be a cursed film production.
2: You know, we see a lot of popular culture being swayed against the Ouija board after that, but even from the very start, there were still people warning against the Ouija board. I believe it was in the very early 1900s. I forget the exact date, but I I recently helped locate her gravesite. A woman killed herself because of a message uh, coming from the Ouija board. Oh, so wow. that hap- yeah, so that was happening at the very, very early stages, too. And she wasn't the first or the last person. There were murders caused by the Ouija board. There, there were way worse things than a little girl getting possessed by a demon in the 70s that were being done because of the Ouija board. Very, very real things. But yeah, there's stories of a gentleman who was tied up by his wife to his bed because she got a message from the Ouija board saying that he hid money. And he finally freed himself and had to shoot his wife and kill her to get free. And this was a little old man. Yeah. So this was way before the exorcist. So even from the very beginning, people have been warning others not to use the Ouija board. And again, this goes because the Ouija board really does produce a movement. Right. If it did not really produce this movement, we never, ever, ever would have gotten it past, you know, 1892. It would have died flat on its feet. You know, and there's other tools in the occult that use the same idiomotor effect that that the Ouija board does. Pendulums are the same exact effect. Thousand rods, even light as a feather, stiff as a board. Those are all idiomotor effect responses.
0: I think a lot of people don't understand that. And so it's always like, well, you're pushing it. You're pushing it. And the reality is, is everybody's actually pushing it.
2: Yeah, yeah, everybody is.
0: Yeah, I mean, when you watch episodes of The Occult Collector, it's like, you are not by any means a minimalist, my friend. I would say you're definitely more of a maximalist having like just items and I mean, they're all well organized. It doesn't look zany by any means, but just like you have all of these incredible items, I totally hear you. If there are things attached to those, you would think that you would have the most haunted house and yet nothing, n- nothing happening in your house. Have other people experienced things in your house when they've come to visit? I have had people
2: come over and say they experience like a presence, or they'll feel something. And that's not to say, Darcy, that weird things don't happen around here every once in a while. But there's always some sort of logical explanation, be it, you know, timing or anything like that. I can tell you a a good story that happened here. if you would really like to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. So every once in a while, something weird does happen here. But I always say there's got to be some logical explanation, be it just timing or... Uh, the way somebody perceives something, but this one story is is one of the best ones that's happened. My coworker, Gary comes over and Gary is an occult practitioner. He practices a religion called Kimbanda, which is an Afro-Brazilian religion, very similar to, uh, voodoo. And, uh, I had him over to see the collection. And at the end of the tour, I asked him if there was anything down there that spooked him, made him uncomfortable. And he pointed to the back corner where it's more of like a utility closet where I have my hot water heater. And he said there was something in that back corner that he did not like. So I explained to him that's just where the laundry room and everything is. There's nothing to worry about back there. Well, wouldn't you know it, the next day when I woke up, I went to take a shower, and there was no hot water at all. So I call my landlord and I tell him about the problem and he comes over and he checks and he says he's owned the property for 10 years and never once has the pilot light gone out on that hot water heater that is located in the back corner where Gary said there was a presence he did not like. Uh, Oh, okay. uh, Again, uh, I would rule that off as just a coincidence. There was nothing that came out at us. We didn't see anything. I didn't feel anything. We didn't smell sulfur and brimstone, you
0: know. <laughs> right, Gary's just over there blowing out the pilot light yeah, trying to get you to now believe. I wasn't looking.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> He's like, "This is going to bring him over." <laughs> Mom says, sorry. So, thinking about what people believe or don't believe, when you're working with someone to acquire an item from them, what role? Do you believe that curses and the stories of curses play in our culture?
2: You know, curses are funny. There's so many different stigmas, and that that follows so many different types of objects. And I can tell you about one object in my collection that I have uh, that is allegedly cursed.
0: Yes, please.
2: I have these wing bones from an albatross. And they're in this beautiful handmade shadow box. And inside the shadow box is a handwritten diary page. And it details how these bones came to be in this shadow box. Mm. Sailors on a boat were throwing fishing hooks up into the air and they caught this albatross and they dragged it down to the boat and they killed it. And one of the gentlemen on the boat decided he was going to keep the carcass and he was going to have it taxidermied or prepared or whatever it was. Well... The mate of the albatross that was killed kept circling the boat, and the other sailors took it as a bad omen, and they stormed this dude's cabin, and they tell him they have to throw the albatross overboard because they believe that it is now cursed and that the ghost of the albatross is after them, and it's going to cause them peril. So he's able to hide the two longest bones from the wings in his stuff, and they throw the rest of the carcass overboard. And these survived all the way from the mid, man, I think mid-1800s, I think these are, in this shadow box. They're, they're fantastic. So they have a home on my shelf because people believe they were cursed. But that goes back to the rhyme of the ancient mariner the story too, where they kill an albatross and they make him wear it around his neck as a reminder that he's the reason why they're cursed and why they're going to die at sea. Mm -hmm. So it's just these stories that perpetuate over and over again. And I don't think there's any legitimacy to curses at all.
0: So what in the collection, because it's a big collection, what is the most quote unquote cursed item in your collection?
2: Ooh, that's a good question. So The only thing in my collection that just one occasion gave me the creeps is a shawl worn by priests. And this one was owned by a gentleman named Father Alphonse during exorcisms. And Mm. I remember bringing it home and being particularly tired that day. So I went upstairs to bed right away. And in the middle of the night, I swore I heard a woman scream my name. And I... like. Sat up out of bed, instant sweat, like kind of having an anxiety attack. And the first thing that popped into my head was that I had to put the shawl in the basement in the morning. And when I woke up in the morning, I realized that the shawl was actually in the bedroom with me. I had brought it upstairs in my bag and had just dropped it off on my dresser before I went to sleep. So it was actually in the bedroom with me. But that's the only thing in my collection that's ever really gone bump in the night, so to speak, or, or made me feel like it had some curse or negative energy, but nothing bad has ever happened since.
0: Does it, does it still live in the basement? Yeah. Oh yeah. It lives in the basement. It
2: hasn't left the basement since I put it down there and it will be leaving the basement soon because I'm redoing the floors down there. So everything that's in the basement is actually coming up to the first floor so I can completely redo the floor down there. So we'll see if anything spooky happens when everything's out of the basement.
0: Yeah, I wonder if certain things will happen because things are feeling disturbed. Yeah, that's one of the theories in paranormal
2: science is that when a house is being refurbished or redecorated or anything like that, that it kind of upsets the the energy, the lay of the land, so to speak. And that's when the spirits get restless. So uh, hopefully I stir some shit up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're like, come on, you're like, I just, I love that your skepticism is just, I want it to happen so badly. Not like it's never going to happen, but please, please let something happen I can't explain. Absolutely. So, do you have a favorite item in your collection? You've got a huge collection, so it's got to be hard to narrow that down, but is there a favorite or most treasured item in your collection?
2: That's really hard. That's like kind of asking somebody to pick their favorite child. Sure. But I got to say, one of the most favorite items in my collection is the last painting ever painted by Ed Warren before he had his stroke and could no longer paint. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I've got that. I have a sign from his museum. I have some of their personal belongings, both him and Lorraine. And they're Connecticut legends. So I I grew up hearing stories about them. So anything from them is definitely one of my prized possessions. Some of my Ouija boards are the only Ouija boards in the world. It's the only one of its kind. So some of those are very, very valuable to me. Monique, my skeleton, you know, she's a member of the family at this point. I can't sell her or get rid of her. I'm going to have her until probably my last
0: breath. For people who have not seen your show, can you explain a little bit more about Monique and her prominence? Oh, yeah. So, Monique
2: is allegedly the skeleton of a murdered Parisian sex worker in the 1920s, and she comes with paperwork tied to her arms signed by other doctors who have owned her or may have assembled her. And I somehow ended up being her caretaker.
0: Well, she's in good hands. She's definitely in good hands. And that's one of the things that's really powerful is when you understand the honor of like, this is someone's earthly remains that live with you. I mean, I
2: really feel that way about all the objects that like, I'm very lucky to be the one who gets to take care of them. I do it all for me. I'm not doing it for other people. And I know... After I'm doing a tour and I'm shutting all the lights off, it really does feel like home down there. You know, it's Mm -hmm. part of me at this point. It's where I like being most. So it it, it means the world to me to be able to, to care for these items.
0: Do you have a plan in place after you leave this earthly realm of what will happen with the collection?
2: Well, my goal as it is right now is to eventually have a brick and mortar that everybody can come visit. As it is right now, it's private. It's it's only available to close friends and family members. I'm not charging admission. I'm not letting people come in off the street. You know, this is in my home. But one day, I would love to be able to have people from around the world like stop by and, and visit these items that mean so much to me.
0: Absolutely, that would be amazing. So for you, as a collector. What's on the Calvin Von Crush occult collector wish list? What are the things that you still, oh, I just need to get my hands on that?
2: One is a hand of glory. And a hand of glory is an occult talisman. It is a hand of a murderer that was hanged, removed at midnight, and bound with the rope that killed the man, dipped in manure and then coated in wax and turned into a candle. And if a thief lights that candle, it casts a spell of sleep on everybody in the building and allows them to be robbed. And then the only way to awake those people is to extinguish the flame in a bucket of milk. So I would love to own one of those talismans. There's like, I believe there's allegedly one in a museum somewhere in the UK. I think it's just a bog mummy hand. I don't think it's actually ever been used as a candle or anything like that. But it is labeled as a hand of glory. So I would love something like that. And then there is a weird natural phenomenon called a rat king. And mm, a rat yes. king. Oh, so you know what this is? You've heard I of rat I do know king? what a
0: rat king is, but please explain it to the listeners. So,
2: a rat king is what happens when you have a high density population of rodents, and something happens where their tails get mangled together, and you'll have this writhing mass of rats, some of them in various forms of death and decay, because now you have this creature that can't always. Fend for itself because it's stuck to others. And sometimes you get lucky and they get mummified. And you can have a mummified rat king in a frame on your wall if you're lucky. And I know there are a couple specimens in museums. There's even talk of squirrel kings where squirrels have been matted together by their tails.
0: Wow. I, did, I knew about rat king. I did not know about squirrel king, but
2: Yes, I have read a story about a squirrel king, and that would be just as terrifying.
0: So, Hand of Glory or a Rat or Squirrel King?
2: Oh, man, yeah, I'd love a squirrel king.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now that the doll's back, the
2: spirit spirit is haunting haunting us.
0: So, let me ask you a couple questions from Twitter that we posed. We asked the Twitterverse, at Eerie Nature asks if you can talk a little bit about your feelings about eBay's attempts to ban paranormal for-profit enterprises.
2: Ooh, that's a very good question. I understand why eBay would try to ban paranormal for-profit enterprises. If somebody is trying to sell an item just because they believe it's haunted, yeah, I, I think that's wrong. You can't tell that person it is being truthful or not. I just think I'm smarter th- than to fall for that. I think people, buyer beware, right? Isn't that a thing? Yeah. So I, I think you should educate yourself first and foremost. You shouldn't always count on eBay to be there to be a support system to protect people's you know, buying. And let's face it, I mean, it, we talked about me not wanting to buy Magic Beans earlier. I think people should just be a little bit smarter. eBay shouldn't have to do it for them.
0: Yeah. I think that comes back to that idea of responsibility, right? Like you should be doing your research. You should understand how do you know the real story behind this? And if you're buying it for fun, that's one thing. Right, right. But to think like, well, they they said, well, people can say anything. So, you know, beware the magic beans out there for sure.
2: Yeah. And if the seller suddenly has 15 haunted dolls and, you know, 15 different listings, Let's take a step back and think for a second, like, what are the chances that you're going to stumble across a box of 15 haunted dolls? This person's selling you a story. They're not really selling you a haunted doll.
0: Right. And if somebody wants to buy a story, all the power to them. But I don't think it's fair for you to get upset if you're trying to buy the object instead of just buying the story. Correct.
2: Correct. And there's a lot of that on eBay. You'll see a lot of people are selling Dybbuk boxes and haunted dolls. I won't pay for something that's just a story. Like I have to be able to tell there's a legitimate history for an item. And I do have some items that people just give to me because they believe they're haunted or possessed or cursed.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that for a little bit, because, yeah, if you at any given moment go onto eBay, we've talked to the new Kirk's about this a little bit, and we've talked to some other folks about this, but if you go onto eBay and type in haunted object, cursed object, haunted doll, whatever, if you throw haunted or cursed in front of anything, you will get a whole litany of items that supposedly are haunted or cursed, so... What rules or what standards or practices do you have in place as you're beginning to think about acquiring a piece? Will you buy something off of eBay or do you have to get it from someone that you know is a dealer or how does that process work for you? Yes, I will buy from eBay, um,
2: but usually you have to be able to see if there's some kind of trail of ownership or if you can really identify that it's got some sort of history to it, especially if it's an item that's coming from uh, an occult practice like voodoo or old powwow magic, witchcraft, things like that. You can usually tell, especially if you've held these items before or you know enough about how these practices are done. Mm Mm-hmm there's so much fakery out there that you can usually identify. You can tell if something's brand new, bright red wax on a Dybbuk box versus something that is old candle wax covered in dust that somebody hasn't touched in 50 years. And I guess it's just experience. And it really does suck that there's so many people out there trying to take advantage of people who do believe Because they want to experience this stuff. I understand that desire to want to experience the paranormal. It's very, very much a part of me. I may not believe in the paranormal and think it's all psychological, but I do want to experience it if it's real. So for someone to take an item and say it's haunted or cursed and that it's going to produce a result in someone's home, it's very sad. And those are the type of people that I actively speak out against.
0: And then... At Lucio Linnae asks, what cursed object do you find the most believable? I got to tell you, I don't believe in any of them. Not one of them. How about this? If you don't believe in any of them, what's your favorite cursed object story?
2: Oh, that's good. I'm very, very fond of the Black Aggie. That's a real spooky one. That's, That's one of my favorite cursed objects. And I've yet to visit it. I've yet to visit the reproduction or the actual real one.
0: Calvin Von Kresch, thank you so much for spending time with us today on the Mysteries Decoded podcast to talk about your amazing collection, curses and cursed objects. It's been such a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for having me again. Thank you for listening to the Mysteries Decoded podcast. I really hope you enjoyed decoding cursed objects with us, and I look forward to you joining us next time to decode our next mystery. The Mysteries Decoded podcast is brought to you by the CW Podcast Network and is hosted and produced by me, Darcy Staniforth. Our executive producer is Jen Titus. Our audio engineer is Joel Smith. Our editor and audio producer is Joshua Sterling Manley.